morning, everybody, and a happy new year to you. It's what we've all been saying to each other this morning, isn't it? Happy new year, happy new year, happy new year. And I wonder if we actually are really hoping and expecting a happy new year. I hope that some of you are, that you've got something to look forward to, you've got expectations, perhaps something interesting in the family, or perhaps something new in your own life. But I think for many, there's a kind of feeling of weariness. Is January the 1st, 2022 really all that different from December the 31st of 2021? Is anything really going to change? Are we going to overcome this pandemic or are we going to go on having to wear our masks and be socially distanced and meet people on Zoom when really we'd rather meet them face to face? So we approach the new year, I think, with mixed feelings. But when we think about our life as a church together, yes, we have got something to look forward to, something to feel hopeful and joyful about. Soon Matt will be joining us as our new minister, and we look forward to his leadership, his enabling us perhaps to move closer to the Lord, enabling us to be more effective in reaching out to the community. And when I look at the whole of the Christian community in Brackley, I'm aware that there is change in all the churches, and I see that as a sign of hope. I'm not quite sure how long Richard's been the vicar at St Peter's, but I think it's fair enough to call him the new vicar still. His arrival is fairly recent. Sarah has come to the Methodist Church to lead them forward. The Life Church have decided to meet in new premises. Things are changing, and I think we all hope and wish and pray that God will be with us in that change and lead us forward into the future that he has got planned for us. Um, this sermon this morning is supposed to be the first in a new series of looking forward and preparing for the future. And yet the subtitle of this particular week's sermon is Looking Back remembering with thanksgiving and with repentance. So why, when we're supposed to be looking forward, am I inviting you all to look back and remember? There are, of course, dangers in remembering. I've got to the age and stage when I can be quite nostalgic about the past. Oh, it was lovely. You know, we all played out in the streets when we were children and there was no fear from traffic and we weren't in danger of drugs or any kind of attack. And it was all lovely and peaceful. It was only half the truth, of course. Or we can look back with a kind of resentment. People didn't treat me right, and if they had treated me right, then I'd be in a much better place today than I am now, and it's all the fault of my, my upbringing, or the people who employed me, or my friends, or the family who didn't look after me properly. Or we can look back with guilt. We can say, oh dear, I've made a mess of my life. I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did something else wrong, and what hope is there for me in the future? The Bible encourages us to look back. The passage that Mark read uh, from us, and I do encourage you to read the whole psalm, that encourages the people of God to look back. And it was only one of the many passages I could have chosen on the same theme. Again and again and again, the Bible says, remember. And of course, later in this service, we will be remembering in our communion service, 
what the Lord has done for us, how he died for us, he rose again, he sent his Holy Spirit. And we're not the only people who will be doing that this morning. Millions and millions, literally millions of people throughout the world will be remembering. They will be looking back and giving thanks for what God did on the cross for all of us. But we look back in order that we may be empowered to move forwards. In the psalm we just read, the writer of the psalm is encouraging people of Israel to look back into their history. He reminds them of how they were once slaves in Egypt. Their hearts were bowed down with hard labor. They fell down with no one to help. And after they'd escaped from Egypt, they spent a long time wandering in the desert. Some wandered in desert wastes. They were hungry and thirsty, finding no way to an inhabited town. Their soul fainted within them. And again, they experienced plague and sickness. Some were sick, they loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. All that was written centuries ago, but I think we can see the parallels with our own experience in this time. We have certainly experienced plague and sickness in the last year. Our government have found it difficult to give us clear direction and it has sometimes felt as if we were wandering around not quite knowing where we were going to get to and how we were going to get there. Many are overworked, particularly those who work in caring or who serve the NHS. Those things afflicted people a long time ago, but I think they may have a very personal relevance to any one of us now. It's difficult for us to plan for the future. One of the things I normally do in this week between Christmas and New Year is think, where am I going to go on holiday this year? And I you know, get the information and I decide that's what I'm going to do. And I book the accommodation. I haven't done it this year because I think I have no idea where I'm going to go on holiday and when and if a holiday will be possible. So it's difficult to plan for the future. We know, sadly, that there's been a huge increase in mental illness. Some of us at this time those we know have sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in misery. Some have been seriously ill, some have been bereaved. And if all the psalm did, and if all we were going to do this morning was to describe misery and suffering, then we'd all go away feeling very miserable and wondering why we'd bothered to zoom in and probably wishing we hadn't. The psalm is realistic, as we all need to be throughout the psalm. There's an honest recognition of the suffering in the past. And we need ourselves to be realistic about what we've experienced, not pretending that everything's all right and wonderful when actually it isn't. But the psalmist doesn't end in thinking about the suffering of the past. And that's not where we should end either. Because again and again, the same verse is repeated. It'll be different in different translations, but they all say something like, they cried to their Lord and he delivered them from their distress. So the question is, have we cried to the Lord in the things that have worried us and hurt us? Are we still crying to the Lord to the things that still worry and hurt us and concern us? Have you cried to the Lord? And can you honestly say, he delivered me from my distress? I was struck by the wording there that there's not always a change of circumstances. We cry to the Lord 
And it's not as if then everything suddenly changes and becomes perfectly all right. But what is true, I have found again and again, is he delivers me from my distress. We cease to feel as anxious and worried and disturbed by the things that are wrong as we would be if we hadn't cried to the Lord. Crying to the Lord enables us to see things from a different focus. And I look back at our life of the church and I think how not all that long ago we were really thinking, oh, we don't really have enough money to call a new pastor. But we've discovered we have got a new, we have got enough money to call a new pastor. At one time we were thinking the right person for this church somehow doesn't seem to exist or want to come to us. We have found the right person. He does want to come to us. And wasn't it lovely to see all those emails from the Gambia and realise how we ourselves have actually been instrumental in delivering people from distress. And I think we all give thanks that a vaccine for COVID has been found. I guess most of us have had our double jabs and our boosters. And for me, I've been struck by not only have I been jabbed, but I've always been jabbed with great kindness and efficiency. And I thank God for the National Health Service. But I've also found that when I get anxious about quite small things in my life. Oh, I've got to drive somewhere and I'm not sure of the way and will it be all right and will I get there and will it be okay when I do get there and will I be able to do with what I expected to do and plan to do. I find if I bring those very small worries to the Lord, the Lord uh, delivers me from my distress. And I think we need to focus as we look back on the ways in which the Lord has delivered us is delivering us. I find it helpful to keep a record each day as I pray with the things that are worrying me, the things that are beginning to distress me, and then a few days later I can look back and I can think, really I was making a big fuss about nothing. I cried to the Lord in my distress and he delivered me. Recognising how God has delivered us from our distress in the past gives us confidence for the future. The Apostle Paul had certainly experienced the distress. This is his description of what he has gone through. This comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from bandits, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. I guess none of us have had to go quite through such a catalogue of suffering and hardship that the Apostle Paul experienced. And yet, when he writes to the church in Rome, this is what he says. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. The people of God living in Old Testament times had many reasons to give thanks. They were rescued from slavery in Egypt. Their wanderings in the desert did come to an end. They were able to settle and build towns and cities in their own land. They were healed in times of plague. But we have an even more wonderful reason for giving thanks. And this is why we come together to celebrate communion. Jesus came to this earth. He is with us in our suffering. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He died so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. He rose again. His love is more powerful than sin and death. He's given us his Holy Spirit to assure of us his love at all times and to give us the wisdom and guidance for daily living, how much we have to give thanks for. So cry to the Lord in your distress, but as you look back and recognize how he has delivered you, give thanks. In uh, the other words that are frequently repeated in Psalm 107, again, are let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to humankind. It's important that we make thanksgiving part of our daily times of prayer. So we look back with thanksgiving. But we also look back with repentance. It's certainly not true that all our suffering is our own fault. But it is certainly sometimes true, when it's also true that we may have brought suffering to others as well as to ourselves. As the psalmist said, some sat in darkness and in gloom, prisoners in misery and in irons. Why they were in that state? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Some were sick. Why? through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities. We have to acknowledge that if we choose a lifestyle, if we indulge in behavior which is contrary to God's will, which is revealed to us in the Bible and modeled for us in the life of Christ, then things will go wrong for us. If we eat all the wrong kind of food, if we don't bother to take exercise, then our health will suffer. If we brood upon everything that's wrong in our life and all the things other people have done to hurt us and nothing good happens, then our mental health will be affected. So if we want things to go right for us, then we need to acknowledge our own sinfulness, which may be deliberate wrongdoing. We knew what was right, but we choose to do what was wrong. I think more often it's that we subject of neglect we we know what we ought to do but somehow we don't get round to doing it uh it would be good to spend more time in prayer but we're ever so busy and uh yes you know somebody needs help but we're not quite the right person to give help i like the words of the book of the um prayer book that the anglicans use i hope i've got it right um they confess weakness ignorance and their own deliberate faults and i think so often you know, we don't live the lives that God wants us to live, sometimes because we sin deliberately, but much more often because we sort of don't make the effort to live in the way he wants us to live. Or sometimes we don't even make the effort to know and understand how he wants us to live. 
It's so important that we immerse ourselves in the words of the Bible, that we meditate upon them, that we know how God wants us to live. And if we're not living that way, then we come to him in repentance and ask for his forgiveness. Because the wonderful thing about God is that he does not stop loving us when we turn away from him. As Jesus was going to his crucifixion in Jerusalem, he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, if you had only recognized the things that make for your peace, but now your enemies will crush you to the ground because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. God hasn't stopped loving them. He's grieved for them because they have turned away from him. Our love for God does fail from time to time. His love for us does not. I love the way that some translations of the Old Testament in particular refer again and again to God's steadfast love. And that's how God's love is for us. It's steadfast. It never fails us. We're promised if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only are we forgiven, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be cleansed and we can live a new way of life. And then we will discover even more reasons to give thanks. But we can only know the joy of forgiveness and receive the power to live a new life if we first acknowledge our own failure and wrongdoing. So it's important to look back in thanksgiving and repentance, and that won't happen by chance. I think our culture does not encourage us to quiet reflection. We're surrounded by noise. We're surrounded by pressure to update and get things new and move forward. So we need to make a conscious effort to look back, to think, to repent, to reorder our lives. The way and the way in which we do that will depend very much on our own personalities. I'm a person who loves silence. I know that silence to some people is very threatening. They don't love it. And I find that I think best by writing things down. And that's not something that everybody is, is uh, happy with doing. We need to recognize our own personalities, our own difference, but we need very consciously to plan, to meditate on what is happening in our lives, to give thanks for the past, to be ready to move forward. So far, I've concentrated on our individual need to look back in thanksgiving and repentance. But the psalm that we heard read has actually a wider vision. It's not about me. It's about let them give thanks. They cry to the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Those who redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands from east and from west, from north and from south. It's a wide, wide vision, a sense that we are and we must be in this together. Let them extol the Lord in the congregation of the people. We give thanks together. We remember together and draw to mind and help each other to draw to mind the things for which we are able to give thanks. We need to recognize our own sins and repent of them, but we also need to recognize the sins of the community of which we are part. I know that my taxes, some of the taxes I pay, goes to support things that I don't want them to support. I don't want my taxes to be used in certain ways in which they are used. As an individual, I can't do much about that, 
But what I can do is I can pray. I can work with others who are campaigning for the kind of things that I think are important. So we need always to recognise that we are part of a community. We're part of this church. We're part of a wider community. And together, we need to be helping each other and encouraging each other to give thanks, to repent and to move forward. Because having recognised God's goodness to us in the past, we can go forward with confidence. And having recognised our own wrongdoing and failure, we know that we're forgiven. And by the grace of God, we can be empowered to face the future. So as we wish each other a happy new year, Let's look forward with hope and confidence that it will be happy, that it will be joyful and that we will have peace. So let's pray together. Lord, we ask that as we continue to reflect on our experience of the past, you will help us to recognise and to give thanks for your goodness to us. And that you will also help us to understand and acknowledge those things which are not according to your will and purpose for us. Help us as we look forward to have confidence in your steadfast love for us at all times. And this we ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>